I'm really glad to be here. I haven't been to this uh, Thursday night group for quite a while. And I I'm glad to see some old friends and uh, to connect with you again. Uh, I, I didn't get to talk to you since the release of my latest book. So I thought, uh, in an act of selfless self-promotion, <laughs> that I, I would read uh, just a couple excerpts from the book. I like it a lot. It's, it's just, uh, it's kind of a fun read. It, unlike many Dharma talks, you, you will get some good laughs out of this book. So I'll read, um, read just a couple passages, and then uh, I'm going to read you, to you from another book which is going to be on the stands maybe by tomorrow or Monday, uh, a book called The Best of Inquiring Mind. 25 years of Dharma, drama, and uncommon insight. Yeah, amazing, and amazing. And, and it's, uh, it's like, uh, as you look into it, and as you'll see tonight when I read just a few brief excerpts, it really is a history of the Dharma in America, in, in particular this this lineage, the Theravadins, but uh, also um, a lot of uh, realization of how young this is, this movement is. And, I mean, it's young in terms of a, a, a species learning how to use its, its brain, uh, and also young to us as a culture, as a civilization. And it's a very exciting time to be alive and be engaged in this. So, But first, a couple of uh, segments from my new book called Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. And uh, since it is a political season, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, I'll read you this little piece. I have a practical suggestion for the politicians in Washington. Over the past few years, they have tried to create a new intelligence agency with a czar who would coordinate whatever intelligence our agencies manage to find. But what the United States really needs is a department of wisdom, a government agency staffed by philosophers, anthropologists, historians, some mystics, even a few gestures, people who see the world in a different way from economists, generals, and senators. Although the political right may currently be in charge, our real oppressor is the left-brain government. A department of wisdom just might provide some critical balance of powers. Meanwhile, I have a modest suggestion for how we can deal with humanity's God problems. We do have some God problems, you know. Actually, the problem is not with the gods. It's with some of the people who believe in them. But then, whose fault are they, right? <laughs> so, this is my suggestion. First of all, we call all the gods together for a summit meeting. Maybe this meeting could be held on Mount Olympus or somewhere in the Himalayas where there are already a lot of gods around who could host the gathering. There will have to be separate tables. Bacchus needs wine, whereas Buddha won't touch the stuff. Demeter wants corn for dinner. Jehovah likes lamb. 
Zoroaster wants candles for a centerpiece, while Tor would like an ice sculpture. Once we get all the gods together, we would beseech them, all of us beseeching our own particular deity, to do humanity a great big favor and decide on a common name. Since I'm the only one working on this project, I'll take the liberty to propose this new name. First of all, if you'll notice, many of the names we already use for deities end in the syllable ah. Jehovah, Allah, Brahma, Tara, Diana, Krishna. So maybe we could get all the gods to accept the nickname ah. It's a perfect name. Ah is the first sound that most of us make when we we're born. Waha. And the last sound we make as we die, exhaling, ah. So the first moment of our life and our last moment of our life would automatically become a prayer. I suppose people could still use their special tribal names for God, but emphasize the last vowel, ah, and we would all agree we're talking about the same ultimate, almighty, ah, the one who is totally awesome. Some nonsense there. And one more little snippet. This is from uh, a segment in here called I Love Science. And uh, I do love science. I never used to like science when I was growing up and in school. I always thought it was just facts that you had to memorize and pass a test on. But then when I realized that science was all about me, I got interested, you know, Gravity is what holds me to the earth, and, you know. I read in some Buddhist literature that the Buddha experienced things changing millions of times in the blink of an eye. But inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything, where the quarks are doing a line dance inside of an electron, events are occurring in increments far shorter than the blink of an eye, which is considered to be one-tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about an attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would re be regarded as a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. Before you can even blink, zepto, it's gone. I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine <laughs> where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started to measure things changing even faster in trillions of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. Atto, zepto, and yocto. <laughs> Hello, I must be going. The time it takes for a quark to go around a proton is somewhere between a zepto and a yoctosecond. All you can do is smile and let go. So that's from Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. Now I wanted to read you just a few passages and then maybe we can uh, have some time for discussion and talk and questions. Um, 
I don't have a copy with me of the first Inquiring Mind in 1983, published in 1983, but looking at it, you, it was about five pages, and it, there were eight retreats listed for the year 1983 in the United States, and about ten sitting groups total, East Coast, West, the whole United States. And now, you know, the, if you look at a current inquiring mind, you will see hundreds and hundreds of sitting, regular weekly sitting groups and just uh, uncountable numbers of retreats. And it's just in our tradition. And uh, it's really so apparent that our culture is hungry for what the Dharma has to offer. And uh, it is spreading quite quite rapidly. And... Uh, and in exciting new ways. And um, I think it's useful both as a perspective on our culture, but also as a, a personal understanding of your own practice to realize how new this is. I sometimes think, you know, if I'd have been born 10, 20 years earlier, I might never have heard of the Dharma, you know, or uh, maybe 20, 30 years earlier. It was a moment, and uh, and it is continuing, and it's changing forms. Um, so I'm going to go back and read from our first, very first issue, which uh, featured an interview with Joseph Goldstein, who whose idea it was for Barbara Gates and myself to start this journal, and um, who I first met in 1970 in Bodh Gaya, India which was a moment in time. I, I don't quite understand, you know, why or how it happened. But there was a retreat led by S.N. Goenka in Bodh Gaya in 1970. It was the second retreat Goenka had taught. He was teaching in India. And uh, there were only about 30, 35 of us at this retreat. But among them were, was Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Daniel Goleman, who became the behavioral sciences editor of the New York Times and wrote Emotional Intelligence, uh, John Travis, um, uh, Ram Das was there, and his entourage, which included Krishna Das and Jai Uttal. And, I mean, it was, it was just a moment in time, I mean, and little did we realize, or maybe there was some intention there that we were going to bring this wisdom back. We were going to bring this these practices back to the United States. We were going to smuggle them back into this country. Because they are subversive, you know. Uh, Joanna Macy says, you know, uh, Dharma practice is an antidote to capitalism, the industrial growth economy. She also says that we are going to have to want different things, that we are going to have to f try to find our satisfaction in uh, something other than material wealth, and uh, because we the nature, nature just can't support our, our level of consumption, we really are going to have to change our lifestyles, if not us, uh, at least in the next generation or two, there's going to have to be some dramatic shift. Anyway, uh, so Joseph is featured in... Uh, and this is just a quote from our first issue, first interview. 
we asked him, when you are teaching, what question do you get asked the most? And he says, well, the preface to the question that's asked the most is, quote, if there's no self, then fill in the blank. In Buddhist cultures, the concept of selflessness is part of the cultural conditioning, whereas in the West, it's almost the opposite. The classic example being Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which evolves around proclaiming a sense of self and then trying to figure out what it is. One of the most wonderful things in teaching retreats is to see people begin to open to the understanding of selflessness. It's tremendously liberating to begin to see that there's nothing to protect nothing to solve, and that rather than necessarily working out our problems, we can stop identifying with them. A little snippet from an interview with Ajahn Amaro when he first arrived uh, in the Bay Area and went up to start his monastery, Abayagiri, uh, up in Mendocino. And uh, what a delight to, to have... Uh, these Western monks who are so hip, you know. I mean, they're wearing the robes and they're really immersed in the Dharma and in the sutras and the understanding of what the Buddha taught in this, you know, these ancient cultures. And yet they are so, you know, Western in their orientation and the understanding of how to bring in science and psychology and, and art. Ajahn Amaro says... It's a strange but sweet irony that in the monastery I find the very delight that I was so rabidly searching for outside the monastery. It just looks like I've given up everything, but actually the inner experience is one of great delight. In fact, this monk's life is a feast. When I was first ordained, I used to think, I'm not going to get away with this for very long. He said he became a monk because he was a hedonist. Speaking of monastic life, Diana Winston is featured in in this new book. Um, The night before I left for Burma to ordain as a Buddhist nun, I held a goodbye gathering with a group of my friends in San Francisco. Moving around the room, I asked everybody in the circle to offer me a blessing for my trip. The replies ran a loving but predictable gamut from wishes for health and adventure to a safe return. When I got to my friend Mara, she paused for a moment and then said, My blessing for you is menstruation. Huh? The room was stilled by a confused silence. Well, she continued, when you are there, if you lose touch with yourself, if you become overwhelmed by an ascetic male-dominated tradition, when you bleed, you can remember your connection to the earth and yourself as a woman. And that is certainly one of the ways that the Dharma is changing as as it is coming to the West, and that is uh, becoming more democratic and and including uh, women in in the, uh, not only in the monastic orders, but as teachers, as uh, carriers of the lineage. Jack Cornfield I think it's it's so strange. Uh, when when I was first studying in India, I, I was very aware that a lot, a disproportionate number of the people doing Dharma practice were Jewish. 
And then coming back to the United States, the first big Western meditation center was founded by Goldstein, Cornfield, Salzburg, and Schwartz. <laughs> Sounds more like a law firm than a, a Buddhist teaching cooperative. So Jack Cornfield, uh, featured in this new book, um, relating his meeting with the Dalai Lama and a group of Western psychologists and scientists. The spirit of our meeting with the Dalai Lama was very empowering. At one point he said, drop the titles. You don't need to call yourselves Lamas or Roshis. Drop the costumes. Change the teachings to fit your own culture. Even I am not sure about some of our teachings about heaven and hell realms. So maybe the Dalai Lama is a heretic too, except that I am the Dalai Lama and they will not kick me out. <laughs> but you must see what is true for yourself and what is true for your culture. You must be the judge of that. We have to make these changes, even if some of our Asian teachers don't understand. Boy, he is, he's, what would we do without him? But that's certainly another way in which uh, there's a kind of understanding that the Dharma will enter this culture in different ways, and that we don't need to we don't need to adopt any of the rigidity or the necessarily the the strict forms that uh, that surround the Buddhism of Asia. Mark Epstein, a psychologist, psychotherapist. I feel that the materialism that is endemic to our culture has infiltrated our way of thinking about psychology. So we idealize a perfect self and believe that by building it up through self-improvement, self-knowledge, self-discovery, self-esteem, we can create a self that won't suffer anymore. What the Buddha says, and many great psychoanalytic thinkers would agree, is that any notion of a concrete, non-suffering self is an illusion. In the Buddhist view, in order for a person to be happy, the ego has to keep unraveling. So the ego comes into existence briefly when it has to accomplish something and then dissolves. The self is always forming and deforming, evolving and devolving. If we can make way for that process instead of getting in the way of it, then we can start to experience ourselves as we really are. That's a beautiful uh, way of putting it. Living happily ever after. The Buddha and Buddhism is often accused of being negative. I think the, the, the Pope came out with some kind of uh, treatise or papal pronouncement that, that Buddhism was a life-denying uh, religion. But I think that the, the Buddha was just being realistic and seeing clearly the conditions of life. And, and that realism is really an antidote to our idealism in this culture and our idealism which keeps us cra uh, crazy, keeps us mad, always thinking that the next thing will do it or that we never have enough or that we can 
feel perfectly secure, that we can somehow protect ourselves from every contingency, or that we can, you know, finally get it all together and it won't come apart again and we can live happily ever after. And that is what keeps us continually lurching forward, keeps us continually in, in this aggressive mode. I think what we need most, both as a as citizens of this country and as part of this culture and as a species, we need to learn how to relax and uh, you know shut down a little bit those primal instincts that keep us uh, warring with each other and always feeling inadequate. Joanna Macy, who's probably come here many times, you've probably seen her, dear friend and mentor, to many of us, uh, who offers a stunning Buddhist critique of the world. Her quote uh, that I'll read you, We will heal by what Robinson Jeffers called falling in love outward. That's our mission, to fall in love with our world. We are made for that, you see, because we are dependently co-arising. It is in the dance with each other that we discover ourselves and lose ourselves over and over. In the Inquiring Mind, we've also featured many people, teachers from other traditions. Uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who became a teacher for many uh, Theravadan students, Vipassana students, and uh, has taught many of our teachers the practice of Dzogchen, which is considered to be kind of the supreme practice of the Tibetan lineages. Sokni Rinpoche, I think this teaching, Dzogchen, is especially good for Americans. Everything here is considered too real, too serious. And because you think everything is very real, you get crazy. You have a real problem. (laughs) And then he laughs. Moreover, I see that you have high-class confusion in America. I can see it in people's eyes. Generally, when I see people who live in poverty and have no opportunity to work, I see a dull confusion in their eyes. When I see Americans who are confused with so many things to do, so many things to have, so much intellectual this and that, I see that their eyes always look outward. Their eyes show a speedy, intellectual, high-class type of confusion. Dzogchen is very useful for dealing with that type of confusion. Harilal Punja, or Papaji, or Punjaji, who many uh, Theravadan teachers went to study with, when we, we, we started to feel like uh, the Vipassana practice was too dry, and we were all feeling like uh, kind of hemmed in, claustrophobic, you know, watch your breath and watch the sensations, and it was all, you know, focused inward. And here was this Hindu Advaita teacher we were starting to get word of this Hindu Advaita teacher who was just laughing all the time and everything was empty and everything was already resolved and, you know, nothing to do. And besides, who's there to do anything anyway? Uh, so we all flocked over there to see him. And I, I went over, partly as a journalist, uh, to do an interview with him 
for the inquiring mind since so many uh, Vipassana teachers were going. And um, I went to his room and I got my tape recorder all ready and I, I said, Kunjiji, uh, could I'd, I'd like to know uh, something about, you know, uh, your moment of awakening. He said, who wants to know? <laughs> I said, I said, uh, I want to know. I'm do I want to interview you. He said, who's doing the interview? This went on for quite a while. <laughs> Finally, I had to convince him that I understood that there was nobody here. And, you know, but, but can we do this interview anyway? <laughs> He said, whatever you do and whatever you don't do is all empty. Every day I see people who have had many different teachers, have done all kinds of practices, and they say, we are here seeing you because you don't give us any teaching and you don't give us any practices. Now we don't have anything to do except laugh. <laughs> and Ram Das who, although he, uh, his main practice was a bhakti practice with, and, and it still is, a bhakti practice with his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. But he also studied uh, Vipassana meditation and did many retreats uh, in this tradition. I like studying with Upandita, this uh, very strict Bur Burmese master. You may have heard of him. Ramdas says, I'm so used to conning people. I'm so used to being charming and charismatic. People always want something from me. It can be a smile or anything, but they want something. Upandita didn't come out of this culture. I was just another 50-year-old guy with a mustache and a mind. That's what he saw. He didn't see Ramdas. So when I met him, it didn't work. I couldn't charm him. It was so delicious to me. You don't know how desperately I wanted that experience of not being able to charm somebody. Because the minute I charm, that paranoia begins. They don't really know the real me. I was uh, visiting Ramdas earlier in the year in, in Maui, where he, li he now lives. He's doing quite fine. Uh, they take him out swimming. Um, every Monday, they take him. Uh, a group comes and they take him out swimming, and he's got a, uh, a little rubber raft that he floats in and he can swim with one arm, the arm that's not paralyzed. And people come and throw flower petals around the part of the ocean where he's swimming. It's quite, it's quite sweet. He laughs. But we were, we were talking one day about, you know, how he surrenders to the guru and, you know, that all you can really do is surrender and, and, uh, and I came up with this line that I just have to share with you. I said, yeah, it's like we, we, we're not the doer. And I looked at him. I said, you're not the doer, Ramdas. You're the dude. <laughs> I just liked it so much. I had, uh, <laughs> you can remember that. It's a good, it's a good thing to remember. One of the great uh, privileges of, of being this 
being the editor of this journal was that I had access to some of my heroes. And uh, we interviewed Allen Ginsberg and, and uh, John Cage, Gary Snyder. This is what Gary Snyder said. What I look forward to is not Zen in America, which to me means the replication of robes and temple procedures, married priests with station wagons, Japanese business contributions, expensive downtown centers, and some sort of hybrid Japanese Protestant etiquette with its own kind of dourness. I'm working toward a Chan on Turtle Island, which for me means an earlier, more open Tang Chinese sort of spirit, old women trading insults and tea cakes with wandering monks, chopping literal wood and carrying actual water, a Zen for ordinary people and a few ghosts and spirits thrown in on a real continent of mountains and streams on which we ask how to include in our Zendos the sagebrush and the rabbits, the farm workers and the growers of Manteca and Tur Turlock, as well as the highly educated, slightly troubled professionals. <laughs> All of that will be more fun, but it will take a while. It will take a while. I think that there's, you know, it, again, referring to how young this movement is in, in the West and how every time Buddhism has gone to a new culture, it has taken on some of the aspects and the philosophy of the culture it moves into and absorbed it. And in China, uh, when Buddha, Buddhism first arrived, it, it became very popular among the Taoist elites, you know, the philosophers and the... And the uh, literary people and uh, artists and then slowly it kind of sifted down into the uh, common people uh, but never really took hold Confucianism won in China as you could see by the opening ceremonies of the Olympics <laughs> all that, that, that calligraphy was that was great, that was beautiful This is actually, this is Alan Ginsberg, who, who Jack Cornfield and I interviewed right after he had come back from China after having taught beat poetry in China. And this was before, uh, this was like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> he said, this is ironic, but the one thing that could possibly have made China's socialism work was the thing that they attempted to exterminate, which was the bodhisattva practice, the Buddhist practice of awareness, mindfulness, care, consideration, and sympathy. The one thing that could have made their communism possible was precisely the nerve center that they destroyed in their blindness. Just a couple more, and then we can talk a little... This is uh, Eduardo Duran, Apache, Tiwa. I recently attended a spiritual retreat for Native Americans taught by Vipassana teacher Joseph Goldstein. Most of the natives were doing meditation for the first time, and afterward Joseph said he was astounded how steady and still the people were when they sat. We have ceremonies where we are required to sit still for long periods, so we don't seem to have a problem with sitting, at least not physically. Native ceremonies foster profound levels of concentration, and many of them are practices of generating metta for all beings, including the earth. We would be willing to teach some of these practices to Westerners if they want to learn them. 
And uh, Francisco Varela, I had the good fortune to interview him before he died prematurely, uh, considered one of the great biologists of the 20th century, uh, the Santiago School of Biology, and also a Tibetan Buddhist uh, practitioner. And uh, just a fascinating man. Uh, I can't remember the title of his great book, but I will before before I leave, I hope. Anyway, this is Francisco Varela. With few exceptions, cognitive scientists have come to understand the egolessness of self. What is surprising, however, is how little their scientific conclusion is taken personally or really applied to an individual's life. Many cognitive scientists that I know close the door of the lab after studying all day about the selflessness of the brain, and then they go right back to their normal self-absorbed life. Science and uh, the medical professions uh, are, are now starting to really pay attention to Dharma and meditation practice. And it's really becoming, uh, it's really being taken seriously now. And it's very exciting, really, that, that the, these practices are becoming part of our toolkit. My, it's always been my kind of uncorroborated idea that the planet, the Earth, was divided into the two hemispheres of the brain. And we got the left hemisphere to try to understand things. You know, you go out and you take things apart and you analyze them and you think about them and look at how it all works out there, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to try to understand reality and has has resulted in incredible inventions and and progress. And, uh, and in Asia, they seem to have gotten the right hemisphere, looking inward, using intuition, you, having a more holistic view, um, being in a, in a, it's a more receptive kind of approach to the world. And now we have this corpus callosum. You know, we have the connection now in the global village. And uh, so they're feeding each other. And hopefully, out of that connection, we will develop a kind of consciousness that can get us out of the mess that we're currently in. So, uh, finally, I just want to read this little piece from an interview I did with uh, Noah Levine about his generation of Dharma punks. And uh, I taught a retreat at Spirit Rock, one of my favorite retreats that I've taught in, in the last 10 years was uh, a retreat with him and his group. And they came in from all over the country. Uh, often, some of them had, had, they all had black hooded sweatshirts, you know, and were, were punctured in many places and uh, tattooed. And some of them had sweatshirts like, it said, Dharma, Funk, Dharma Punks Philly, you know, like, they're like gangs, you know. But they were all connected with their particular generation and their particular kind of music that they rebelled with. And, and Noah has framed the Dharma, Noah and Vinnie Ferraro and a number of really uh, important 
younger teachers. I've framed the Dharma as a means of rebellion against this culture and a means of, you know, uh, of understanding yourself and coming to a new, uh, a new kind of life in this very difficult uh, world. And it was just so, such a was so uplifting to see it happening because we are, we were starting to think you know that the Dharma was going to die with the boomers you know or just kind of like sink into the ground and and so we talked about the music that went through our heads when we were meditating because I used to I used to have a terrible time and James is probably at it too I'm sure of songs going through your heads and 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 sometimes you know, insidious. They, they just don't shut up and they just keep playing and playing. And I had songs like Yellow Submarine and, you know, Rolling on a River and things like that. And and Noah said, he what did he say? He had, oh yeah, uh, Black Flag. I'd never heard of them. Uh, the lyrics, I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. My head really hurts. If I don't get out of here, I'm going to go berserk. <laughs> oh, well. Rolling on a river. <laughs> this was, uh, so this is what he had to say. I created Dharma Punks as a name for our movement, partly because it's a play on Kerouac's Dharma Bums and reveals that we are all in the same lineage of spiritual American rebels. But I think the name also relieves some of the pressure of being perfect or of even being a Buddhist. The name Dharma Punk says, I love what I love, and I still get angry and have lust and all that stuff, and I dress funny and have funny hair and lots of tattoos, and I am intentionally offensive in punk ways, and beneath this, beneath this disguise, this uniform, I'm deeply committed to personal growth and spiritual awakening and service, service to others. My role is simply to make the practice accessible and applicable for my generation who can't hear about it from your generation. And maybe even my generation isn't the right term because the people I'm talking about are really members of the counterculture of my generation. They're punks or skinheads or surfers or skaters, the ones who aren't in the American mainstream. And one of the most important messages I can relay is that spiritual practice isn't just for hippies anymore. So we have a little time, a few minutes for uh, any any questions or comments about th this book is being published by Wisdom Publications, and it it's going to be out uh, any day, and uh, it's really a wonderful chronicle of, of of this practice and this movement that we're all a part of. Anybody? Skeptical, someone who's skeptical. The question was, uh, 
have I ever thought about trying to get on mainstream radio so that you know I could uh, maybe spread my the word about my book? I have uh, tried, and uh, I've actually been on KGO a number of times, and you know I occasionally get asked to be on the more mainstream media, but um, you know we're still. I, I think that I and and this movement is still a little bit peripheral. Um, and, you know, people really caught in this culture are very skeptical, uh, you know. I, and it's and it's hard to understand, you know. You, it's hard to explain to somebody. I mean, I've... Uh, I've dragged dear friends to retreats who, who I think are very smart and, you know, really perceptive and understand the world and have been in therapy, and I mean, they really are. You, no, I mean, you know, they, they've 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 done some uh, investigation of of their own mind, and it it just doesn't take, you know, it just doesn't take. And I don't know what separates those who are called. You know, we get called in some way, uh, but you know, it it's it's becoming. It's becoming more mainstream. And like words like mindfulness, you know, are just common words now, and everybody kind of knows what they mean. Meditation. Yes. Yes, there's a lot there's a lot going on in prisons. Uh, the questions about Vipassana meditation in, in institutions and there's a lot uh, going on in prisons, in schools. There's a whole uh, organization called Yoga Dharma uh, that is bringing uh, meditation into uh, grade schools. Um, the prison work is 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 spreading. There's a movie, new movie out about a prison in Arkansas. I forget the name of it. Anybody know which one I'm talking about? Anyway, it's it, it is it's becoming very uh, very common to find that happening. <laughs> right, lay people. <laughs> well, uh, the question is about, you know, the Dharma taking root, and yet, uh, aside from a few monasteries that, you know, these, these groups, these kind of loose groups in the cities are, are uh, where the Dharma is taking hold, and it, it, feels, it feels like it's not institu- there are not institutions that are oh the bon- monasteries are central in Asia and yet here what what is the center? Well, I think it is groups like this, and I think that eventually you know uh, 
will be in the chapels and will rent out the the basement to the Catholics. And you know, I mean, I, I but again, this is a young this is a young movement. I I think it's quite remarkable how many how many retreat centers and and I uh, have opened in the last you know twenty five or thirty years in this country. Uh, retreat centers in all uh, in all traditions. I mean, they're they're just dotting the landscape, and and uh, so I I think it's just a matter of of time, and also you know the the Dharma will come to different people in different ways, and some people it will come as a, a, ma- a way to manage pain or you know uh, uh, depression or suffering of some kind, physical suffering. To others, it'll come as a kind of spiritual uh, context, a, a way to understand their lives. You know, I think that's what how I feel about the Dharma. I don't feel um, like a particularly religious person, but I feel like it's given me a sort of psycho-spiritual context. I sort of see, I accept the the basic teachings. I I feel like they're the underpinnings of my worldview and that um, they really inform and relieve my my human journey well let me just uh, close with a one a little poem that I wrote it's the only poem in this book why I meditate I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was younger it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Alfred E. Newman, et al., I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I meditate because I want to touch into deep time where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. I meditate because I've discovered that my mind is a great toy and I like to play with it. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta master, Punjaji, once told me that in Hindi my name Nisker means non-doer. 
I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because Robert Thurman called it an evolutionary sport. I want to be on the home team. I meditate because I'm composed of 100 trillion cells. And from time to time, I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. (laughs) I meditate because it's such a relief to spend some time ignoring myself. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma-vihara, the divine abode of awe. And then I'll go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm building myself a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need to add a new window. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you all for coming. I hope you have a wonderful Labor Day, relaxing Labor Day weekend, and let's have a good uh, election year and uh, turn it all around.